following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Good morning. <laughs> Thank you, children. That's a great Father's Day gift. Uh, my name is Matthew Nikoloff. I am the uh, priest at the South Wedge Mission, which is a Lutheran Episcopal slash everything else mixed together church plant about five blocks that way, maybe? Yeah, thank you, all you directionally people. Um, and and I'm, I'm really um, honored to be able to help um, with worship while Pastor Scott is on his sabbatical. And uh, also, I want to always say when I'm here, thank you so much for the hospitality that you give to my family. Uh, we're not quite refugees in the same way as, say, people living on the border, but as a clergy family, you know, you don't always get to worship in your own church, so it's really nice to have a place to come home to and get to worship with folks. So today's um, sermon, I wanted to try something a little different, just because I even get tired, believe it or not, of hearing myself talk too much. And um, one of the things, we're, so one of the things we're going to do, and I'll, and I'll explain why in a second, is we're going to listen to, we're going to practice the spiritual discipline, the contemplative discipline of listening deeply. Um, and some of the music we're going to listen to might not be very comfortable at times to listen to. So learning to live in that tension, learning to hear the laments and the disorienting cries of others in order to deepen our own empathy, um, in order to hear a voice that is not ours so that we can actually grow in our capacity is really vital. And some of the music's just really great too. So hopefully um, that'll be cool. So what I'm going to try to do is, is do a series of little vignettes punctuated by some different pieces of music. So um, there'll be most of them I think have like a video of, of a live performance of that, so it's kind of fun to watch too if you're more of a visual person. Uh, I don't know if the ushers are on, if we can hand out the, um, there's a lyric sheet too that I'm going to hand around. Did that already get handed out? Not yet? Okay. That'll go around. You don't need it right away. But that way if you're the kind of person who can't follow along orally but would like to read the lyrics, totally cool. So where we're going to go with this today um, is it's World Refugee Sunday, and we're observing that today. Oh, thanks. And we could talk about so many groups of refugees um, currently facing crises throughout the world, throughout our country, uh, whether it's in um, the Mediterranean or at the southern border in Macedonia. Uh, across the world, there's refugees, um, and they're a big reality. And like I said, we could, we could go a whole month, unfortunately, talking about the plights of refugees. But there's one group of refugees, so-called, that I'd like to kind of focus on today, and sometimes they're the hardest group of refugees to see, but they also are one of our clearest voices of disorientation um, in our midst. And those are the people of African heritage that live in our country now. Even though we've, give, we've uh, um, ostensibly done civil rights and we've done um, the ended slavery and we've tried to do all sorts of things, um, the reality is, right, that there's a culture that has been from its, and there's a people a group of human beings who have, from their inception into this country, from their forcible bringing to this country, have faced, um, have basically lived under refugee status and sometimes less than refugee status. We often care sometimes more for the refugees coming in than we do for those who are living right in the midst. So, refugees of our own economic, racial, cultural, and social violence, and our history of that oppression in our country. The reason I'd like to talk about that in particular is because, for a couple reasons. One, it intersects with my own story of trying to learn how to be more. Um, open to not just appropriating cool cultural music that I like, but actually letting that music do what it was meant to, which is to hear that music and to move me into a place from appropriation into, um, into appreciation and action, right? And not just um, liking something, but really being moved by it. The other is that um, so much of, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the term black music because it's how many of the authors and the, the singers that we have um, in this, in this 
talk today will talk about themselves. Black music is involved in that process of, of what W.E. Du Bois, who's a you know, very famous African-American writer, described as double consciousness. This idea of always being in your body and being aware that you both, um, are, you're, you both belong and you don't. This idea that no matter where you are, because of the color of his skin, he said, black people are often very aware that even though they are here, they are not. Even though they um, are part of this, they are definitely an outsider at the same time. And that this double consciousness creates a tension, a, a cognitive dissonance, um, and creates a lot of anxiety. It creates the need to express. One of the reasons we're using this music today as part of disorientation is because, um, as some of you remember two weeks ago, we talked about orientation, right? We talked about how music is this like cosmically beautiful thing, and it's mathematical, and it's harmonious, and it's balanced, and it's, it's, it's in the background cosmic radiation, and it's also in our cells, and how all this stuff is very glorious, right? It's very awe-inspiring. It's very orienting. It helps us feel more connected to ourselves, to one another, to God, and to creation, right? For the most part, like music can do that, it can harmonize us um, with our existence and with others. Um, but not all music in our world and not all music or language in the Bible is meant to just make us feel all groovy and harmonious, right? It's not all hippie stuff. Uh, some of it actually is meant to disorient us, to prophetically name some of the places in our lives that are lacking, some of the injustices in our world, to call us out of that comfort so that we might be open to the conversion necessary to become more like Christ, to become less um, addicted to ourselves and to our appropriations and our preferences, to be less addicted to identities that are built on oppression and or anything other than on Christ. And so while it would be fun to just play spirituals and gospel, which is the kind of music we usually associate with like African-American tradition in church, we're going to listen to some dissonant voices, starting with the blues, going through a little hip-hop, some jazz, and even some country and we're going to let these voices kind of narrate an experience to us. So I'm going to try to say very little about each one and just make, maybe give a vignette or a story. But I want the preaching to mainly be done by the music that we're going to listen to. And I want you to hear that music addressed to you not as someone who is a consumer of entertainment, but especially if you're a person who, a person who identifies as white, someone who is maybe not on the inside of this music. One of my um, professors in seminary, J. Cameron Carter, was our systematic um, uh, theology professor, who's the first African-American systematic theology professor at Duke Divinity, which, you know, a lot of the Southern Methodists really loved. Um, <laughs> and he talked about his, one of the main themes he tried to hammer home for us is that as Christians, we did not start our own story. We didn't start this thing and then welcome other people into it. Right from the beginning, Christians are grafted into somebody else's story. By grace, we are included. We are not the includers, but we are the included. By grace, we are the ones who God said, you know, you're not Jews, but I want you in here anyway, right? You're the outsiders that are brought close, as it says in the book of Romans. What happens when the Christian church throughout the centuries has forgotten that it is included and not the includers is the Christian church starts to think, well, we get to decide because we're the originals, and so we get to start to, you know, we don't really need Jewish folks. We can enslave certain people who aren't as Christian as us, right? The history of oppression begins with racism and with the identification of ourselves as the origin rather than remembering that we, by grace, by no merit of our own, have been included into God's story, into God's song. And I want to posit that as we listen to some of this music today, I want us to not just hear um, black voices calling out in different ways, but to hear God reminding us, you didn't start this. This is not just your story. 
There are other voices, and where is your place within that story rather than trying to be the one to control, consume, and commodify that story? So our, initial, our first track, if you will, is um, from someone who's a local Rochester person, uh, the great Sun House, uh, a blues man. And it, as some of you know, the blues, right, is an expression often of uh, Cornell West says that it's an expression of black rage. And we often don't like the word rage, right? We often struggle with rage um, as being this kind of like bad thing, right? Um, especially in good, um, you know, proper church culture. We like to sing about harmonious things. Um, but as theologian James Cones reminds us, um, the blues are fundamentally rooted in the black experience of being treated as subhuman, of having that double consciousness within a um, religion and within a country that promised them something and then didn't deliver, of betrayal, of, um, of deep pain at one's existence. But as James Cone said, that the blues means that black people could transcend trouble without ignoring it, and this means they were not destroyed by it. The blues, by being able to still be around to articulate these deep feelings which sometimes disturb us and disorient us, is a testament to survival. It's a testament to the persistence of the cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not as a cry of, um, of, of despair, but as a cry of saying, we're still here and we're still waiting to hear from you. It's a persistence and a faith. So I'd like to um, start with um, a, a brief song by Sun House called Grinning in Your Face and see how that resonates with you as we listen Don't to it. Because this is copyrighted music, please refer to the links in the podcast description. Sunhouse spent much of his life, not just in the cities, but as a sharecropper, as a tenant farmer, um, working really hard to try to make ends meet as he also worked on his music. Very often, one of the injustices we do um, in our musical tastes, one of the ways we appropriate music, is by trying to fit um, a culture's music into a certain idiom, right? Like, black people is city music. It's urban music, right? It tells those kinds of stories, right? Um, and in some ways, um, that's what we like to consume, especially I, I recall my life growing up in Fairport <laughs> in high school and driving around listening to Tupac really loudly and enjoying that music very much, right? California love, and it's all about L.A. life and stuff, right? Um, which is like the height of appropriation, right? Because uh, <laughs> as a 16-year-old white person, I wasn't really relating to... Um, the deep existential pain of Tupac trying to say, my life has nowhere to go. I was just re- commodifying the rebellion in order to enjoy it, right? And as soon as like, um, white people started doing that kind of thing, like Rage Against the Machine and some of that not-so-great new metal stuff afterwards, right? using some of that stuff, people started consuming it um, because it was like we liked the rebellion side of it, we liked the way it made us feel, but we didn't necessarily want it to touch us, right? We wanted it just at arm's length so we could feel like we were being culturally cool and appropriate and without actually admitting that we were also not really letting the message move us. Um, recently, this kind of, um, this question about appropriation and the place of black musicians in the culture um, has come up, especially uh, uh, if you, any of you have kids, you might know this song, Old Town Road, that's been playing a lot. Anyone? Right? Yeah? Um, if you haven't, you can go listen to it. I didn't want to play it just because it's, it's, it's cool, but it's, it's by this guy, Lil Nas X. And it's all about this, this, um, this black rap dude Playing country, he's playing a country song. There's banjos in it. He's singing about being from the country, and there's all sorts of um, there's all sorts of backlash from the country music charts because it's like why? And it literally, this is literally the argument: black people are appropriating white culture. 
As soon as, like, right, we can do it, but as soon as they start to, to step on a sacred cow, right, that, it, it exposes that, 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 that kind of chink in the armor of our, of our being um, cool and accepting and welcoming, right? It's like as soon as something that's sacred to us, we have to share it. Um, we, we tend to push back. It shows where our real, it shows where our real loyalties lie. Uh, the irony being, of course, right, that white people didn't invent country music. White people aren't the only people who have lived in the country or have those kinds of experiences, right? Um, Sunhouse, Mahalia Jackson, many of the great blues men and the people who, and blues women and gospel singers grew up not in the cities, but also in the countries. Um, James Baldwin had this great, this great saying, um, right, that when he was talking about um, watching cowboys and Indians as a kid and then realizing that even though the Indians were not black people, that he realized you watch the show and you realize you're the Indian as a black person, right? But that, that's, that's the story of America, right? We, we claim this land from non-white people. We were the chosen people. We were the original people, and we had to find a way to fit these other people in or exclude them. Somehow we were first. This is our community. This is our covenant. How will we fit you into our narrative? How will we be the original and you can be the one that we let in, right? That resulted in a lot of violence and justice. The creation of refugees who are still wandering and looking for a home in this country where they're forever strangers. Um, and the way that this kind of dialogue continues, right, is in the ways that white people with impunity have appropriated music, um, such as Led Zeppelin blatantly ripping off the blues. We all love, lots of people love Led Zeppelin, but they pretty much, in the Rolling Stones, like, stole a lot of music from the black tradition and pawned it off as their own for commercial gain. Um, and so this next song is, is a little, this one, if you have kids, you know, we, we bleep, I had Mike bleep out some of the swear words, but I didn't want to completely avoid it. Actually, he bleeped out all the swear words, I should say that. <laughs> They're all gone. But this is by a rapper, Most Deaf, who is another person I found in high school who kind of shook me out of this um, kind of just consumptive attitude a little bit and asked us to really consider where did our music come from? Are we, did we really originate that stuff? And to think about how it might feel to someone else. Um, how it feels to have their heritage stolen. And so there's a lot of rage in this song. Again, black prophetic rage. But I hope we can also maybe hear the call of Christ clearing out the temple and saying, you have taken this life of prayer and turned it into a den of thieves. So how can we hear this song calling us out on the ways that we sometimes forget the stories that our music and our lives have been grafted into? How can we be willing to face our own participation and appropriation? Um, there's a few uh, images of like slavery and civil rights in this as well. So maybe just you can talk about your kid, talk about it with your kids if you want. Because this is copyrighted music, please refer to the links in the podcast description. So if we're honest, some of us are like, yeah, I like a lot of those artists, right? And some of us are probably like, hey, you shouldn't. I like the white artists on there too. Why do we? Have, why does it have to be an either or, right? Don't all musicians matter, <laughs> right? Um, but most deaf, who's one of the more socially conscious rappers who emerge out of the late 90s and who is very, um, usually very peaceful and very hopeful. This is a real expression of, um, of rage, right? Heavy metal, uh, rap is heavy metal for black people. I love that line. Just this expression of saying, wait a second, there's more behind this, right? Um, so as I went to college and got moved beyond my, um, my uh, cruising around days and the, with hip-hop on the radio, um, I wrote an essay to get into college. They asked, what would you do about racial reconciliation in the world? That was one of my entry essays. And I, of course, quoted a Garth Brooks song about how we should all be free when everyone comes together and makes music together. It was very well-intentioned. Um, but then, uh, you know, I was also listening to this music. And as my uh, different groups in college would travel up the East Coast to Boston to sing, we'd go through Harlem and see these huge high-rises, 
huge high rises on on the on the river as you dri- as you drive up the expressway. And hearing stories from the more socially conscious hip hop that I listened made me think: Who are the people living in there? How could there be so many people living in these spaces, uh, in poverty and neglect? How do we stuff tens of thousands of people into these giant concrete tombstones? And you know, like many of us in college and many of us who care, I started to wanted to do something. Right? I wanted to help. I wanted to get involved as an ally. Um, I wanted to try to not just um, not just have Captain Planet theology, right? Where we're like, "Yay, white people, we're here to save the day, and like, let's make the world a better place." But to actually let that music move me more than just as something that I enjoyed listening to. Um, and of course, one of the things that I kind of didn't do so well was actually moving my body from appreciation into action. I went from appropriation to appreciation. But it was hard to move from appreciation into action and amplification, right? Like these A words, right? Not just to say, oh, yeah, I hear that message, but what am I going to do with my life, right? Um, and one of the ways that I think many of us get involved is we get involved with activism, right? Notice I didn't make activism one of those words, but it is a way we get involved. We try to start saying, yeah, you know, civil rights, and um, this music is trying to move me to some place, um, and one of, the, one of the voices that I think caught this on pretty early on, one of the white voices who I think got it pretty deeply, was the great Bob Dylan. So we're going to play another song by Bob Dylan, which is one of the earliest attempts by a white artist to not just appropriate music, but to try to tell stories. And he was really moved by the death of Emmett Till, which as some of you may know, as a young black man who was traveling to the South, um, was accused of hitting on a woman and was basically tortured and murdered in the middle of the night by some residents there. The residents, the, the murderers eventually got off and were even interviewed by a national publication for the details of the story. Um, and this was an outrage. And Emmett Till's mother um, demanded, right, that his coffin be open at the funeral so that people across the nation could see what white supremacy in action looked like, what the refusal to let stories be integrated into our lives or to see how our lives are integrated into a bigger story. Um, and so she tried to disorient us with that physical um, display of her son. And this um, is a song by Bob Dylan called Oxford Town, which unfortunately, he wrote one called The Ballad of Emmett Till, which is a little longer, so we couldn't play it. And plus, I thought it'd be nice to have the white guy have a little less airtime than everyone else um, in the flow. But here um, in this story, um, see how you might identify with um, his speaker in this story, as someone who cares, because I'm guessing everyone in this room cares about injustice. Everyone here feels moved by this music beyond just wanting to appropriate it or have some cool like cultural experience in church. But let's just listen to Bob Dylan and then I'll tell you a story. Because this is copyrighted music, please refer to the links in the podcast description. So that's the version of the Emmett Till story that Bob Dylan chose to record. And it's still for his time pretty um, in your face, right? Like someone better investigate that. Look what's happening. It brought consciousness to so many people who were, um, especially northern folks, who were folk music aficionados and uh, injected a social dimension into the folk, folk music movement that wouldn't have existed otherwise. And so in some ways, the folk mu- movement was willing to listen to the stories of black people, and instead of just appropriating them or being entertained by them, to make them a part of their story and engage with them, right? And yet in that song, um, there's also that really interesting lyric where he says, we all, me and my gal and my gal son, we went down, and as soon as something bad happened, we turned and got back where we came from, right? Someone should investigate that, but you know, we're, we're not there anymore, right? 
Um, I feel that line very poignantly because uh, one of the conversions I've had in my life, which is very profound, and some of you who've been to the mission may have heard this story, is when I was in seminary at Duke, which is in the South, so you have a lot of exposure to all sorts of not just uh, all sorts of interplays between rural and urban, black and white, a history of slavery and plantation um, oppression, and also a really diverse and vibrant community that's trying to rebuild in the wake of that. I was the, I was the president of, my stu- of the Divinity Student Council, and I felt like I really tried to use, you know, I was really inspired by my theology professor and by all this stuff that had been bubbling up since college and wanted to use my position to um, work for uh, a more integrated and a more just student body because there's still a lot of uh, segregation, especially within the theological education community. And so I spent the year, you know, opening up spaces and creating common, uh, common ground conversations and trying to bring people together and privileging voices during meetings, all this stuff, right, that a good white ally is supposed to do, Right. And at the end of the year, I noticed that like not a lot got done, and even um, especially the Black Student Union really didn't like me very much, and that really hurt me because I said, "But I've been doing all this work with like you know my my privileged amplifier voices and do all this stuff," and so I, I was it was the last day of school. I was really feeling heartbroken because I'm like I tried, you know, and uh, and then I saw my friend Brandy, who was the uh, the the head of the um, G- LGBTQ ministry on campus, who uh, you know is another super oppressed group even in the seminary down there. And I said, Brandy, what, why, why didn't this work? And she said, well, you said a lot of nice things, but you never showed up. You never came to a meeting. You never met us on our terms. You wanted to have it on your terms. And that was really harrowing and heartbreaking, right? Because I thought I was doing it all right. I thought I was being this ally. I was listening to the right music, reading the right theology. Um, I thought I was helping to break down the walls of oppression. And, you know, it wasn't all bad. But Brandy reminded me, that this life of faith is a constant conversion, that the sin of white supremacy, the sin of, um, of racism runs very deep in us, not just because we're all racist, but because racism and white supremacy are expressions of the way that sin works in our hearts. Sin, um, as uh, St. Augustine and Martin Luther defined it, is this curvatus in se, this curving in on ourselves, where we take everything around us and we make it about us. Um, Thomas Merton described it as this false self, which has this thing called the scorecard. And the scorecard is always about trying to get credit for ourselves, trying to say, look how I've justified myself before God. Look at how my worth comes from the kinds of things I do or the kinds of things I wear, the kind of how much money I have, or even how socially just I am, right? Look Look at my resume of social justice. I must be a really good person. But often that resume that that stuff we post on Facebook, right, to seem like we're really engaged and active and that we really care is actually sometimes an expression of the false self trying to keep us away, keeping us at just enough distance that we can sing about it, we can enjoy it, we can even be moved by it, but we don't have to act on it and certainly not have to amplify it in the place of our own voices. That was a really heartbreaking moment for me to realize how far off I had been, even though I felt like I had come so far. And maybe some of you had that moment too. Um, The good news, though, is that Brandy didn't give up on me. And neither did a lot of the other people in my life, especially a lot of the black people who were really patient with me and said, okay, now you, the fact that you get it and you're willing to admit that, the, as, as, as we say in our, in our service, right, the fact that we're willing to confess and to repent means that there's hope, right? Because the, the cross, the, the theology that we follow in Christianity says that God is speaking through the voices of the marginalized, the oppressed, people who have been forgotten. Those are the voices that God is using to speak into the world to make it new. And while for, um, for uh, the black community and for many oppressed communities, salvation means finding your voice and speaking out and being heard and being recognized, um, often I think for so many of us who come from more privileged places, salvation comes in hearing. 
and listening and being moved and letting it deeply stir us up into agitation, but then also finding that grace can make us new if we're willing to be embraced by that. To realize that we do belong to a story that started not with us, not with um, our inclusivity, but with God's grace, trying to say, look, you don't have it all right, and you need to be back integrated into this people that knows some stories that you don't know. But it's going to be disruptive. It's going to be disorienting. It's going to hurt. It's going to be hard because it means letting go of so much of that scorecard and that false self that we keep um, tabs on, right? In some ways, musical appropriation is just another little analogy or another little facet of, um, of sin, right? In the ways that we make idols out of things, the way that we try to build money changer tables around the sacred temple of God to protect ourselves and to keep ourselves feeling valuable. And the lie that is exposed there is that none of that stuff can make us valuable, Because if any human being is 100% dignified by God, then every single human being is. That doesn't mean every single human being's path will look the same towards repentance and conversion and liberation. But certainly for people of privilege, our path involves some silence, some listening, some repenting, a lot of it, in fact, and moving forward. Um, And the next song I want to play, there's two more. is by um, one of my favorite, and probably someone who's like saved my, saved my soul many, many times, um, the great Mavis Staples. And this song is from 50 years after Bob Dylan wrote his song. Um, and in 2017, after the events of, um, of what happened with Trayvon Martin being murdered, a teenage boy unarmed, shot and killed by an armed white man who had been told not to act by the police and decided to do so anyway, and of course was acquitted. And Mavis has been a folk singer since back in the day, right? She's one of the originals. She was in the Staple Singers. She sang with Martin Luther King. She dated Bob Dylan when Bob Dylan was younger, and she was younger. Um, and uh, in, in the recent years, she's been collaborating with Jeff Tweedy of Wilco, right? So if there's hope for hipsters, right, like Mavis Staples has embraced <laughs> Wilco fans. Because Jeff Tweedy has used his considerable musical influence to help to amplify her voice, to say, look, I know how to produce. I know how to take some of the things that are to help you be heard for who you are in the broader world. And so Jeff Tweedy, as a white ally, has used his producer skills, has used his listening skills to amplify Mavis's voice even louder. And I love what Mavis has to say in this song, because even though she has a lot of rage, and you can hear it in her voice, she's also a very mellow, kind of like loving, like let's all get along and embrace each other. Um, in this song, she, um, she has something to say about what's going on, but also, I think, a path forward. So I'd love for you to um, listen to this and hear what Mavis might be saying to you. Because this is copyrighted music, please refer to the links in the podcast description. There's a lot of cool things going on in that. It seems like a simple video, but the fact that she has chosen, not was forced to, but has chosen to work with a lot of white rock musicians. The fact that Mavis has chosen to say, I'm going to transcend that stuff, not because I'm going to play you know, the docile black entertainer and try to market myself, but she's making a statement with that music. She's saying, I still believe that when we bring the best of what you have to offer, like white guy with the Telecaster, like that's, that's pretty white, right? Um, <laughs> In, R&B, in that kind of rock music and infuse that back into this gospel R&B blues and sing this song. Not only can she still at 80 years old, like I hope we all are that way at 80, right? Fight, like you can see the passion and the fire in her eyes. But that we can do that together. I think that's the good news of the Holy Spirit and that's the good news of repentance. It's the good news of remembering that we are incorporated into God's people not because of the color of our skin, because of our accomplishments, because of what kinds of music we're able to put on our scorecard, um, but by grace, And Grace says, like Mavis at the end of this song, little bit from you. Take that next little step, and let's do it together. 
The presence of Mavis Staples still trying to sing at 80 years old, still believing in incorporating and doing music a different way, even though, right, a year before Trayvon Martin was murdered and we still have just as much as, if not more, oppression in our world. It doesn't mean every single person of color should have that attitude or needs to or is able to. But the fact that Mavis is continuing on and that she's coming from that deep place of faith, that she's preaching the gospel, is good news for someone like me who just continues to like find ways to mess up my best efforts trying to be an ally, right? I keep trying, and then I keep finding myself sliding back from action and allyship into appropriation, or maybe appreciation, but not quite being moved to action, right? And we're always in that back-and-forth place. But God is the one who has founded the kingdom on grace, not on our works, God has founded a base and has incorporated many genres and many different people into this community. And God speaks through God's prophets still to call us out of our complacency and to show us what a different kind of world might look like. And then asking us not just to sit there and admire it, but to get involved, to act, and to amplify others' voices the way that uh, Jeff Tweedy and others have done for uh, Mavis Staples and her family. Um, the last thing I want to show you before communion, because I want to bring it back to our conversation about um, Old Town Road, um, is that in addition to black rage in the blues, um, there's another strain that's flowing through all this, and it comes from combining the blues and the gospel. Um, it's what Cornel West calls black exuberance. Um, I just saw somebody uh, the other day post on Facebook about black pride. They said, black joy is resistance. Refusing to let our humanity be defined by anything other than the creative love of God, which is singing the song in our hearts, and being able to come through that like the blues, like, like the blues people, and being able to once again find setbacks and continue to say, we are here, we are human, we are singing, is not only an amazing testament in itself to God's grace for the black community, it's also an invitation to us as the white community and the people of privilege to say, what if we faced our own poverty, our isolation from our humanity when we participate in systems of oppression? What if we let this music move us out of the same old stuff of um, creating, you know, just commodifying and consuming, and let these things move us to action? What if that struggle and that suffering might actually lead us into a new place, might redeem us too? What if that same God that is lifting up the lowly also wants to redeem and convert us into something more than we were before? So the last thing I want to show you, um, and it's less about the words on this one, it's just more about the feeling, brings us back to this whole debate about country music and black people. And this is a performance from the Country Music Awards a few years back with Beyonce and the Dixie Chicks. Yes, that's right, the Dixie Chicks. Another group that I was listening to in my car cruising around when I was a kid. Um, and, I, and, you know, we could talk, there's like probably another nothing more white than like a white dude, uh, a white progressive pastor talking about Beyonce's Lemonade and how, what a great album it is. Um, but it is a great album. And it's partly great because of the ways that she reclaims so much of this music for herself as a way to then assert her agency and her power. It's a black woman doing this against her rich husband, against uh, rich white people. All these people have betrayed her. And instead of just saying, um, you know, screw you guys, she's saying, like, look, look how joyful I can be even though I am suffering, right? It's taking the blues and the gospel and all sorts of other things and taking it to something that's completely new and different. And I think it's even um, really cool that she has the Dixie Chicks on here because as some of you who are maybe country music fans know, they were themselves silenced in the early 2000s for daring to speak out against the then-president George W. Bush and his policies and in the country music community, right? AKA, when you become an ally, 
people in your own community might not like you very much, right? You become part of the solidarity of the silenced. And I think that's another reason why Beyonce was willing to bring them up. Uh, the words of the song are about being raised by a daddy to survive in the world. So it's a Father's Day song, too. I don't condone all the stuff that the daddy taught the daughter in this song. But it, like I said, it's less about the words. But it is about also this common upbringing of how do we survive in this world where not only others, but we ourselves continue to um, commodify and appropriate the best in us for our own uses rather than accepting it and moving, having it move us in action. And I especially would have you look at the, not only the reactions on some of the people's faces in the audience <laughs> and see if you identify with them, but also some of the movements and the, and the emotion from the song. And from here, um, when, we, when we end, we'll, uh, we'll uh, move into communion. So let's roll the last one, please. Because this is copyrighted music, please refer to the links in the podcast description. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.